Strike, O Mighty One, our sacrifice begins. We commence. Spellberg, a podcast about the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. It's time to party like it's 1974. Hey there, DCC RPG fans. Our mailbag overfloweth, so it's time for another episode devoted to your emails. I'm Judge Jeff, and with me today is Judge Jen. Hello, hello. And Judge Julian. I only had one drink. Hello again. And give a drink of your most expensive. Tavern Talk. All right, so here we are in Tavern Talk. So I don't know. I don't have too much going on at the moment. I'm gearing up for WayneCon and the Origins DCC RPG Tournament. I'll be running a preview of the DCC RPG Tournament at Weird Realms over Memorial Day weekend. Uh, Julian, what are you up to? Uh, over here, I've just been running my uh, City of the Damned campaign, uh, and I will um, I'll link that in the notes just in case people are curious. They can go and, and look at uh, the Obsidian Portal uh, campaign page. But it's my effort to do a, a DCC Mega Dungeon. We're about mm. four uh, sessions strong, and I'm using some of the Lankmar rules, uh, specifically Fleeting Luck, really, for the first time, and um, also using uh, Dooms and Benisons, which has been uh, a lot of fun so far. So that's, uh, you know, I've, I've done about four sessions in the last month, so this is a higher frequency than I'm used to. Uh, yeah. And it's going pretty well um, because it's, a, you know, focused on a little bit of resource management uh, and things like that. I've been actually uh, more rigorously punishing people for spell burn and uh, other ability losses and so on. So that's, it's going to be a little interesting. It's more heavily geared to a campaign, campaign play and uh, not so much one-shots that are strung together. So I'm sure I'll have more uh, learning and feedback on that as we go. Um, and also really pleased that uh, I have an adventure in the free RPG day uh, you know, book that's going to be given away in June. So I'm really psyched about that. And the title? Is Gash <laughs> of the Starcons. So uh, it's a uh, first-level adventure uh, where a lot of different paths can be uh, taken. But uh, in a nutshell, the adventurers are uh, sort of press-ganged by the mysterious Starcons to prevent the wizard wizardress Indrakala from rewriting <laughs> her own fate. So, Julian, I'm not familiar with the word Gesh. How do you spell that word? <laughs> I think we've I think we've guessed uh, our, uh, as much as guessing as anybody could take on this podcast. <laughs> that well said. Um, and is that DCC or MCC? That is my first DCC foray, so I'm really uh, very uh, tickled to be there because you know, of course, I'm was first a DCC fan and mostly a D&D &D guy, but I've also had the opportunity to 
do some MCC stuff, which has been great. But this is a big milestone for me. So I'm really psyched. Do we know, is there more MCC in the pipeline or right now is Goodman Games? Okay. (laughs) Okay, great. I know there's at least a few modules. Okay. Uh, uh, Speaking of editing, you'll be happy to know there's more Lankmore modules in the pipeline as well. Let's see. Last weekend was our second little mini Brinkmanomicon open game day. Um, I ran... uh, It it has a title. I I mean, I I have to title the little scenarios, but I ran another sandbox for a table of six, including one of Bob's cousins, which was awesome, and ended up with another three-way spell duel. Mm. Yeah, uh, we're going to have to actually get some mm, quote-unquote rules up for that. Maybe that's something for the Gong Farmer's Almanac to tackle, because it gets a little tricky when you've got three people in there, because is it one versus one versus one, or is it two versus one? It's kind of hard to adjudicate. Uh, But, you know, roll with it. That's what you got to do at the table, right? Um, I also played Mothership, which was Awesome, and um, while not strictly DCC-related, uh, I know that Don Stroud is one of the spearheads behind Mothership, and it's pretty rocking. I might actually run that one. So I might run something besides DCC. Oh, that's a great idea, because now I'm actually thinking maybe instead of running Queering the Dungeon at WayneCon, maybe I should run some Mothership if somebody else isn't. It's actually pretty simple to... Uh, to just lay down and go. Yeah, you might want to review it a little bit, but uh, I'd say if you if you don't want to be you know gender prescriptive about it, it could be fathership or othership. I mean, there's different ways to tackle it. Dork. So I'm also preparing for PRPG, <laughs> in which I may or may not run Julian's adventure. I I might just run um, you know a, a funnel like. Uh, not in Kansas anymore or something along those lines, but we're not going to have a big two-day extravaganza at the store, but uh, Dungeon Games will be hosting Free RPG Day again. Yay! And yeah, that's about it on on the close horizon. Uh, we had to cancel our plans for North Texas, so sorry guys, we won't be there. We'll see you all at Gen Con. I'd also like to throw out that although I will be at Origins during Free RPG Day, Weird Realms is going to be running games, and I love that store. So if you're in the Cleveland area and looking for something to do on Free RPG Day, I highly recommend checking out Weird Realms. Awesome. All right, so let's move on into the meat of our episode. I call upon the flame to sun you. Who delivered the message for me? I came here to give you these facts. Summon email. Okay, so here is our mailbag. Let's go ahead and dive right in so we can get as many of these read and answered as uh, as we can cram into this episode. So, Julian, what's the first one we have? All right, here, this is coming from Judge Chris. I was listening to episode 72 and the responses about whether or not to allow a halfling to add luck to their to a deed die and wanted to share my take on it. I think that a success or failure on a D-die is independent of modifiers, just like with criticals. However, if a player wanted to add a luck modifier to a D-die, 
that would be fine, even though it would affect both to hit and damage, but not D-dice success. This is no different than adding a luck bonus to a spell roll, say, for Bless, where the luck modifier could conceivably result in better to hit and the damage for the party, but not keep the caster from suffering disapproval. This keeps it balanced without abusing the use of luck. So, um, I take it that he means that the principle that he's adhering to is you can use it to change modified numbers, but you can't change it where the rule is about the natural number on the die, like as in critical or as in disapproval or as in the D die success. And um, yeah, I think that's that seems pretty reasonable. I'm I probably would let somebody hit their deed with a luck roll, with the luck burn. I don't know. Um, I mean, it's not like they're going to do it over and over and over again. Luck's a pretty good resource-managed resource already. But um, playing someplace with fleeting luck. Even then. I've been using fleeting luck for four sessions, and it goes really fast. Yesterday, we had 12 points on the table, and they were arguing about whether to spend 10 at one time, and five minutes later, it was all gone. Because of a one, right? Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, my table last week suffered from that as well. Um, However, having had this conversation and argument many, many times at the table and even at the uh, Gen Con booth... um, you can spend luck on any roll. You have an attack roll and you have a damage roll. The deed die is its own thing. You can't spend luck on any die. You can spend luck on any roll. So you can either modify one or the other. That said, house rule it how you will. Yeah, my short answer here would be I, I feel like you can spend luck to increase the modifier on a d20 roll. That's how it would work at my table. However, I could see a house rule where if you wanted to spend a point of luck to re-roll any other kind of die, I would be okay with that. Now, I wouldn't do you spend a point of luck, you re-roll it, you still don't get what you like, you spend another point of luck, you re-roll it. I, I, and mostly just because like that starts to get just kind of time-consuming and grindy. So I would let you do it once, potentially, um, if you really wanted to, but that's as far as I would go with that. Mm-hmm. All right, Jen, what's our next email? Um, this one comes from Sean. Hello, what Florida conventions? <laughs> I see where <laughs> I got this email. Uh, what Florida conventions are Goodman Games going to attend in the next year? We have some large convention centers in the Tampa and Orlando areas, but I don't see my favorite game in attendance. Metrocon, Megacon, Huracan, Recon all have gaming and vendor space available. The first two are larger events with a wide range of interests, while the second two are smaller but still fun cons full of great games. Love to see you in my home state. Um, okay, I, admittedly, I have not been to any of these, but I do know that Troy Tucker and, of course, uh, Goodman Games Ambassador Brendan LaSalle have been to uh, Necronomicon, which is in Tampa in November, October? Yeah, either October or November. Um, and while there's a lot of gaming there, it is in their experience for the two years that I know Troy went, it is almost exclusively Pathfinder or 5e. And any other game system, the people just don't have the, the bandwidth for it. They walk right past the table. They don't even pay attention to it. Um, in fact, I believe 
Brendan's game was attended by Troy uh, last year, the year before when they went there. Um, there's plenty of small cons in Miami that are primarily fandom based or there's a lot of comic book conventions, but we don't get a whole lot in the way of gaming. Even Megacon, which is supposed to be, you know, really huge for everybody in the area. Um, it's all about who's going to be there that we can go get pictures and autographs with. It's not about the gaming. At least that is the the takeaway from the Fort Myers area. So nice. I will sign off with that. <laughs> and Sean, I would like to throw in there to be the kind of gaming you want to see in your conventions. So if you want to see DCC RPG at your local conventions, then I would encourage you to run some. And once you start running some, there will now be a footprint for DCCRPG at your convention. And hopefully other people will also start playing it and running it. And we'll see it grow from there. Yeah, if, if we had an actual large convention you know, with hotel space, etc. in the southwest Florida area, like south of Tampa, because you know, that's three hours away for us. Um, I think we would have a a better chance of getting a DCC presence there. But Sean, if you're local to one of the larger metropolises, dude, go forth, start spreading the word. Perfect. And I see another email in here from a Kaylina and Kaylina says, Hey, I finally remembered to check out the podcast you're on Spellburn. I'm not good with podcasts, but I wanted to say it sounds great and you're doing great stuff. I haven't had the chance to play DCC, but I picked out the episode on inclusion and it was still good stuff even to a non-DCC player like me, Kaylina. Uh, So so Kaylee is uh, one of the, uh, there's a trio called Bardmageddon, which is really clever in and of itself, (laughs) right? Um, and they're a Renaissance Fair act, uh, musicians that play usually just like the Northwest area. And we met them at Peoria and got to talking. So it, it's awesome that she wrote in about it. Yeah. You know, we, we should link them in the show notes. And also we, Jen, mm-hmm. we should put your musical and Bob's musical stuff in there too. Cause I don't think we've done that in at least a long time. Uh, okay, Job. <laughs> y'all are gonna be like that all right <laughs> yes yes we are all right here's our next one um apparently from dennis beecher uh dear judges i recently had the opportunity to run my first non-funnel dcc game many thanks to bob and jen brinkman for opening their home to adventure and was fortunate enough to have many DCC veterans among the players, so rules questions were pretty much non-existent. I'm considering running some more DCC at the nearby at the nearby friendly local gaming store, FLGS. The funnels I've run in the past were all for players with experience in other RPGs. Aside from the occasional nudge to remind them that they had their luck to spend, they didn't really need to learn any new mechanics. Since first level is where a lot of what makes DCC special is where what a lot of makes DCC special kicks in. Oh, man. I'm sorry, guys. I'm not reading that sentence very well. (laughs) First of all, it's where a lot of the class rules and the DCC special rules kick in, is what he's trying to say, and I'm not reading it right. Sorry. Uh, I'm curious what your experiences have taught you about which DCC mechanics tend to trip up new players. What kinds of things are important to teach new players first? 
Um, I will just say that uh, I would kind of focus on getting the main rule going for all of your players. So I would think for um, for Warriors, it's the, you know, focus them on the deed die a little bit. They don't need to worry about adding their level to initiative that much or avoiding a fumble by burning a luck and that kind of nitpicky stuff. You know, get them going with the deed die for wizards and elves, you know, get them going with magic and maybe patrons. Uh, with clerics, get them going on disapproval and maybe divine favor and lay on hands. And, the, you know, the, that's a little gets a little more intricate for thieves, you know, the luck die. I kind of pick one focus for each class. Uh, and then the other thing is those uh, class cards that somebody made a long time ago, three or four years ago. Oh, yeah. um, I still use those at every con game I run and hand them out with that character, you know, the appropriate character sheets. And uh, and they have a, just a nice little bullet summary of, of class, uh, you know, abilities and stuff that uh, helps people. So uh, that's all I got. Great. I would throw, I, I think, Julian, you answered it. My The only thing that I would add to it is certainly when I'm running a funnel, all I explain to people who haven't played before is how luck works. And if I'm running a first level or higher game, then I explain to the whole table how luck works. And I also explain how I specifically adjudicate luck because I not every judge does it the same. And then what I do is I ask everybody who has never played DCC before, and I go and I have a one-on-one conversation with each person who hasn't, and I just explain to them how their class works. Because, you know, if, if, if the person playing the cleric has played DCC before, I don't feel like I need to spend time telling the whole table how divine aid works. But if I have one newbie who's got a thief and another newbie who has a warrior, then I will talk to the, the, the player playing the thief and let them know how their luck die works. And then I'll talk to the guy who's playing or the woman who's playing the warrior and let her know how the mighty deed works. And then we start rolling dice and playing. And I, I go ahead. Do you actually, Jeff, do you actually like go around the table and talk with them one-on-one or are you more like, you know, at your regular post to just talking across the regular table, you know, no, to I, them? I walk up to them. Oh, and cool. I usually kind of walk right up to them and crouch next to them and like point at the character sheet and show them where the things are. Right. And if you have two or three new players, that takes like a total of five minutes, which gives everybody else at the table a chance to, you know, finish on their phones. <laughs> You guys are so caring and personal. I, I love it. Well, if especially if it's at a convention where people have paid to have a seat at my table, I owe them that much. Yeah. I, I want I, them to have a, a good experience with the game, and I also want to represent the game well enough so that they want to come back and play again. I, I totally... Uh, no, I'm I'm not being sarcastic for once. Yes, <laughs> you are. <laughs> Well, maybe a little, but I actually think that I should uh, probably do that. So, uh, good. I I love running things other than funnels usually because I want to, like Dennis said, show people, hey, this is where DCC differs from everything else. And this is how it's cooler. Clerics, your spells don't run out. You don't have a one and done. You get to lay on hands infinite times, depending on how much your god and your dice love you. And I, I really think the biggest thing that trips people up is the deed die. Because I have new players who sit down with that all the time and they always forget. And then they just say, oh, well, it's a 
a mechanic, so I roll it. No, no, you got to tell me what you're doing. What are you trying to do with that die? Uh, so I, it's partly trying to bring people out of their shells at the same time, which is challenging. All right. Right, so, yes, yes. yes <laughs> next email. Next one comes from Mike P. Just last initial. I was working around the pronunciation of bug bills. Got it in one. After some deep thought and muttering the name to myself repeatedly with differing syllabic emph- emphasis, uh, I feel that you all have his name mostly right. Oh, geez, really, Mike? <laughs> I that the name as above is merely an approximation. The limitations of human physiology prevent us from correctly pronouncing the name of our swamp sovereign. Nice. I offer this solution. First, press your index finger lengthwise and horizontally to your mouth. Second, while saying bog bubbles, move your finger up and down rapidly. The bog bubbles. With a little work, this true sound of the maestro of the marsh's name will reveal itself. Cheers. Hey, Jane, you haven't tried yet. You're right. I read the mail. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for the tip. Our next email here is from Todd. Hello, the band. I am a big fan of DCC, despite having played it only once, DM'd one session of Sailors for my 3.5 group. I fell in love with the modules and the rules from the beginning, but Mighty Deeds of Arms has always vexed me. If there's no cost to declaring a mighty deed, why not shoot the moon with every swing of the sword? I see only tables enumerating the benefits. Seems like a fighter should have some skin in the game and suffer some minor penalty for losing the gamble. Also, and unrelated, by merest happenstance, I fell in with a semi-regular BX game of Grognards. We just finished one or more of the Slavers modules over the course of the year or so, and I immediately started on the Ghost Tower of Ivernus. While I enjoyed bathing in the nostalgia of the system, I played on the long bus ride from ho- uh, ride on the long bus ride home from fourth grade. The pacing of basics rules is slow. My question: <laughs> How do I get these jokers to try DCC when it's not my house, and the DM is a little jealous of his position? Keep up the good work. I look forward to each podcast. Thanks. Todd. All right. So it looks like there's kind of really two questions here. There's how do you adjudicate mighty deeds? And is it over? Is it OP? And how do we get uh, this BX crew to play DCC? My quick response to the mighty deeds question is yes, I want my players to shoot for the moon each time, and I don't want to punish them for wanting to do something heroic. It's emulating the kind of fiction that um, that we're excited about, and I want my players to want to do really fun, badass moves. And it's such a bummer when you're playing another rule set. And you say, okay, great. I want to jump onto that table, swing from the chandelier, and then leap onto the shoulders of the troll. And yes. then they say, okay, well, then make a, make a, make a, an athletics check and then give me a deck save. And, and then they give you like this whole list of things that you need to do. And if you fail it, you then fall off the table and fall off the troll's shoulder. And or, or worse, you just can't do all of that in one action. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Or they just say no. And I'm just like, that's not fun for me. Mm-hmm. No, I, I'm I'm right there with you. And yes, I want I want the fighters to be uh, the warriors, especially. Warriors and dwarves should be up front 
giving it their all, doing, you know, shooting the moon for every chance they get. Because not only are they going to eventually fail and fail hard, they're also going to be taking the brunt of the incoming attack. And they're going to end up getting those critical hits against them, too. So there's plenty of skin in the game, because at the end of the day, it's only hit points, man. Um, For the second question, this sounds a lot like what uh, Joan had been going through, trying to get like a 5e game switched over to DCC. And okay, screw it. She she just relented and she was like, fine, we'll play D&D then. And... Yeah, the the DM was super jealous of his position, and any challenging to his rules was was just, oh my god, get out of my house because you aren't following my rules. So, yeah, good luck on that one. Invite them to your house. That would be my suggestion, Todd. Ooh, good one. And also, real quick, I want to chime in here, just super, super quick. I realized we didn't explain the timer. And if this is somebody's first time listening to Spellburn, they might be like, why does their phone keep going off? So for those of you who are new to Spellburn, when we're going through our emails to keep things moving, we set a little one-minute timer for each person. So if you hear that going on in the background, that means you're out of time. Keep moving. Um, but I, I wanted... I thought we used to get two minutes each. <laughs> oh, was it two? I thought it was one. It's one now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But now that I've said that, Julian, what what were you going to say? Reset the clock to zero, please. Okay. So um, on the deed question, there is a way that fighters have skin in the game, and that's the fumble and the fumble tables. So it's already there in the rules, and it's, I think, purposely not a deed fail. um, I don't have much more to say than that, but if you are doing things freeform for deeds anyway, like I do, and they're trying a really cool deed and they fumble, then the fumble result should probably be something reflecting the deed they were trying. So, yes. Exactly. Um, Word. uh, On the other question, um, yeah, you're not going to win that battle, I don't think, of trying to get these guys to try DCC at somebody else's house, unless it's a fill-in. And the guy just isn't hasn't had time to do his prep, and you you helpfully volunteer to just do a one off run sailors or whatever. Uh, that, they might be willing to try something new as a one off. And of course, you can, you know, try to build your network, including those folks, and invite them to your place or FLGS or whatever to play. So, good luck. Perfect. And speaking of Joan, I think I see another another letter in here, Jen. Um. Yeah, we'll get there. It's Julian's turn. Did I skip one? All right. Yes. Oh, I'm looking ahead. Okay, yes. Sorry, Julian. (laughs) (laughs) Chaos. I just got so excited about Judge Joan being mentioned that I was looking ahead. Uh, This is from Sean. And uh, hello, guys. In 2014, I decided I wanted to run my first game at Gen Con. I wanted this game to be DCC, and I didn't want it to suck. I decided to do a world tour to practice and squeezed in a bunch of games before the big day. Part of that preparation was taking lots of session notes. I found it helpful in the beginning to put it all down on paper so that I could make improvements. Towards the end, I was doing it more as a record of my year on the road. I ran across this notebook recently, and I'm glad I took the time to write all of it down because I'd forgotten so much of what happened during those games. 
so much of that great year had vanished from my memory. Do you take session notes? Is your memory of games played in the past as bad as mine? If you don't take session notes, I would recommend trying it a few times. I think you'll be glad that you did. Uh, thanks, Sean. So uh, quickly, I'll say that when I'm running a campaign, I do take session notes. I tend to use Obsidian Portal and, and log them so that they're there for my players if in the very, very rare case that my players will ever go and look at them. Um, but they're mostly there so that I can actually refresh my own memory and maybe look up a stickler of what happened in the past if we need to. Um, and also, I probably mostly use it to keep track of how many sessions we've actually had. <laughs> and the second... Um, well, Julian, what is Obsidian might, Portal? Uh, Obsidian Portal is a RPG-friendly, uh, really oriented site where um, you can keep all your campaign stuff, your house rules, your player roll call, your adventures and wiki and everything on a on a public website. And there's, you know, you sign up and then you can have your own campaign on there. Oh, cool. Um, it's I, yeah, I probably use ten percent. Yeah, I probably use about ten percent of the functionality of that. But um, <laughs> I'll link my campaign notes as I was talking earlier, and people can check it out if you're curious. It is, I think, it's become a pay site, so not everybody's going to want to use it. But um, last thing, really quickly, I also do it when I'm playtesting for obvious reasons. I just want to know, you know, at the table, remember very clearly what went well and what went wrong, so that I, you know, can build on that. Um, that's it for me. So when I started my little uh, campaign at the FLGS, which was just a bunch of different modules strung together with some flimsy meat in the middle, um, I was actually blogging with session notes every time. And part of it was so that I could remember the cast of characters and like who died or who had some really interesting stuff happen to them. And it was also my way of keeping track of uh, party treasure because I would make, <laughs> okay, a really old school Luddite here. I would make either photocopies or printouts of the PDFs and um, run the, the adventure from that. And I'd have my notes written across the adventure and I'd like highlight when somebody found something. And yeah, I, I, was, I was that paperwork nerd. And I can tell you that I've probably only actually logged about half of those adventures because it just got to be so time-consuming. It would take probably mm, two hours to log one session. And really, that, that's a lot of spare time that I just don't have anymore. I do still keep track of... Every single game that I run, though, especially on the cons and, and for the road crew and everything. And I don't know if you guys remember the 8.5 by 11 um, graph paper with the Dungeon Crawl Classics at the top on that top banner there. It was part of the 2014 or 15 road crew swag. Mm. I just used, like, my last sheet of it last weekend. Mm. So I'm kind of sad. Yeah, those are cool. I do remember that. Yeah, this is not one of my strengths, I will admit. Um, <laughs> now, when, when Julian mentioned taking notes right after a playtest, absolutely. I do try to take um, careful notes immediately after a playtest because also my memory is just not great. It really isn't. And my big 
obstacle with campaign notes is not only is my memory not great, but I also, my I'm usually so mentally exhausted after running a four-hour game mm-hmm. that the last thing I want to do is then sit down and jot it all out. Now, one of the things that I did when I was running my fourth edition campaign back, of, <laughs> which I, I, I actually did have a campaign in fourth edition, and we were doing a campaign called the Teens of Valon, and they were all playing teenagers. And in addition to having to choose a race in a class, I also had them pick their 80s teen movie archetype. Oh, I'm out of time. Um, but like, so you'd be like an elven ranger, but you'd also be like, you know, the the cheerleader or the bitch or the, the nerd <laughs> or whatever. And I gave them uh, bonus experience points because we had a, a Teens of Valon blog. And if they wanted to write blog entries from the perspective of their character, uh, recapping what happened in that session, then they got bonus experience points. And it, and they like they had so much fun with it, and they were writing like bad teenage poetry on there as well. And like doing part of your job for you, exactly chronicling what went on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the other really big obstacle I had was that I had like an hour to drive home after every game too. So by that point, I'm just. I'm fragged. Oh, of course. All right. Um, let's see. Oh, there's Jones. Hey, Judges J. We all have them, metagamers. It may only be one, or you may have a few in your group. How do you deal with the player who just can't seem to stop foreshadowing? With luck being an ability stat, I'm thinking of taking a point of weight. A- a point of luck away. Does this sound too harsh? It has worked to talk to the player outside of the game. It doesn't seem to work to say something inside the game. Go fig. And thanks for a great any winning podcast, Judge Joan of Arc. All right, Joan, uh, as far as metagaming goes, the, the biggest problem I have is with the people that try to maximize every tiny bit of uh, damage that they might be doing. Um, as far as foreshadowing, you know, even if I'm running a scripted adventure, let them. Let, let them make their guesses. Let them say it out loud. And if it comes to pass and they've all prepared for it, then so be it. Um, I think you'll find if you get outside of the scripted games and start doing a little bit more on the improv sandboxy side, if you have that one player that just won't stop trying to guess where you're going with it, you can always do a 180. You can throw them something completely unexpected. Or, depending on how you're feeling that day, maybe you're feeling a little snarky, go ahead and give him what he's looking for, but maybe what he's after isn't quite as tough as what you're throwing at him. Yeah, and... I would say in general, I would avoid having in-game mechanical punishments for trying to deter people from metagaming. That's not the kind of environment I would want at my table. But certainly, you know, some people have different thresholds for what level of metagaming they're comfortable with. The metagaming that I personally don't care for at my table is when other players are telling other players what their characters should be doing. I don't I don't care oh, for yeah. that. And, but the way that I deal with that is I just simply say, you know, 
okay, Brian, you know, you're, th- this, this isn't your character. Let's go ahead and let Sarah figure out what she's going to do. Because also usually in that situation, the person who's doing that is also a, usually a very big personality who mm-hmm. kind of constantly wants to be involved in every aspect of it. So I have to control it. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's fine to have a big personality. Let those people have their moment in the spotlight, but also encourage them to let other people have their moment in the spotlight. So when I say, okay, Brian, like this is Sarah's character, let Sarah figure out what she's gonna do, then that kind of it's just it's a very small thing, but in that moment it kind of helps everybody kind of remember, like, oh yeah, this this is a role-playing game. Sarah's playing this character. And especially if your character is not even there, if if Sarah's like gone off on her own mission and is like kind of soloing the dungeon for a part, I especially don't want you telling Sarah what you think her character should be doing. You mm-hmm. know, if your characters are talking, having a conversation, and that's another thing is sometimes when everybody's like now like strategizing, I will say to them, I'm like, are you guys having this conversation? Are your character? Yeah, are your characters or- having this conversation? Yeah. Because they, this might be a situation where they're wanting to be super silent, and they go, oh, oh no, I'm sorry, and then they stop. Or they might be the, like, yeah, we are. And great. And yeah. now that I know that they are, I now know that they're making noise in this dungeon that they should really be quiet in. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a rule for random nice. characters right there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, I, I have yeah. heard of, okay, if, you, if the table doesn't shut up in two minutes, especially for a home game, uh, everyone's taking a point of damage. Or mm-hmm. if you don't put your phones down, you're going to take a point of damage. I wouldn't take away an ability stat. No, oh, I wouldn't do that either. I wouldn't do the damage either. I, I think Joan nailed it. Um, sorry, Judge Joan nailed it when she said um, talking to him outside of the game, uh, it worked. And then the you know the other stuff didn't work. I, I think you got it. I, you know, talk to you know, pull him aside for two seconds, or zap him with an email or a text later, and just say, "Hey, that was a little uh, off. Can we not do that?" And they're going to appreciate the fact that you didn't humiliate them in front of the group and or etc. Mm-hmm. So, um, no, enough said. I think. Yeah. Okay. Our next one is from Judge John. Dear Spellburners, Judge John here, and soon I'll be beginning my very first DCC campaign. Awesome, John. Uh, Thanks very much for the guidance and advice I've gotten through this wonderful podcast. I have a soft spot for Spelljammer, and so that's the setting we'll be traipsing through. But I've struggled to find engaging rules for nautical adventures to steal. How would the Judge's J run ship-to-ship combat? Are there any particular houses houses that they favor? That probably means house rules that they favor. Uh, thanks very much for reading, Judge John. Oh man, I've I've never played spell. Um, I almost said Spellburn. I've never played Spelljammer, um, <laughs> and I don't know. It's, it's never really been my 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 jam hat. Um, <laughs> I've never done ship-to-ship combat. I would probably just make it hit points and damage, but I wouldn't have it be like 3,000 hit points and each one does like 70 points of damage. I'd probably just give it like a normal monster's worth of uh, damage. And then as you're like throwing cannons at it, just have it be like D4s and D6s and D8s and just kind of have it be kind of human-sized damage. But I don't know. I would, I would Since I don't really encounter that oh, kind of oh. stuff very often. What? Oh, pick me, pick me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it's there is your prayers are answered because Tim Callahan has already done all this. It's in Crawl Jammer. It is specifically kind of a spell jammerized dungeon crawl classics. It's awesome. Go. The first issue has uh, ship combat rules for spell jammers. Nice. And uh, yeah, so. And um, if you don't like that, you can go to Star Crawl, which Jonathan Snodgrass 
put out very recently. I think um, I think it's more science fiction-y, uh, though. Uh, they, there's still shit stats in there. Um, it, it's kind of sci-fi. I mean, you could run Black Sun Deathcrawl Null Singularity with it, or you could run MCC with it. Um, mm. But you could mm. still use the... Oh, I also, blend it with I don't have it in front of me, but I also I know that Dak Ultimac and his crawl um, fanzines episode, uh, episode issue eleven. I think it is eleven. Yeah, is all on uh, like not like maritime adventures. And honestly, I'm not really familiar with that issue because again, like it's not really an area that I'm that interested in. But um, th- I feel like there's got to be something in there about that. Oh, there, there's definitely stuff in there. Um, that one was written by, uh, those articles were written by Mr. Brinkman, uh, the resident pirate scholar. And um, yeah, there's everything in there from this is how much this particular cannon shot does to how many crew are necessary to man the ship. Perfect. So, John, it sounds like you have a lot of answers here. It sounds like Crawl Jammer is probably the best place to go. And if you don't get the answer you like there, then look at Star Crawl and uh, look at issue eleven the of the Crawl Zine. <laughs> yep, and I'll link those in the in the notes. Obviously. Awesome. All right, uh, here we go uh, from my pal Christian, uh, dear Spellburners. My wife, Stephanie, and I attended Gamehole Con 6 this year and had a blast. I hadn't been to a con in almost a decade, and my wife and I, and my wife had never been to one. We were both not sure what to expect and a little anxious. I booked three days of DCC for us, and we went to Wisconsin to see family and do Gamehole Con. Our first game was with Judge Julian and Judge Forrest, and we had a really good time. It even got better there, much MC. DC and America and BCC were played over the course of three days. We ended our con with Doug Kovacs and Sailors on the Starless Sea around midnight Saturday. Everyone involved in DCC and the con was great. I say to anyone out there looking at possibly going to a con, absolutely do it. We are now working on our plans to go to Gary Con in 2020. Yay! Uh, P.S. Uh, check out the used bookstore in the Milwaukee airport. Yes! Uh, <laughs> nice. Uh, Judge Christian. Yes. I've spent a lot of money at that bookstore. Oh, yeah. Sadly. So I, I think I had already given him a shout on, uh, on the post-Gamehole episode we did last year. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun uh, meeting Christian and Stephanie. And, uh, you know, thanks, guys, for coming out. Yeah, and I look forward to meeting you at a future Gary Con. I'm guessing the one you went, went to was the one that's already passed. And I, did, I didn't meet you there, but I'm, I, I look forward to meeting you at another one. Well, he says 2020, so I think he's, I think it's next Oh, time. you're I mean, right. Unless our episodes yeah. are that far back. <laughs> this is, uh, this is 2019, Jeff. You're right. Yeah. Well, the email's from okay. November. So the email was from before GaryCon yeah. 19, but you're right. He it does is, say 2020. This is kind of a time machine, these emails a little bit. Uh, a little bit. And then there's people who are listening to these episodes 10 years from now, and they're just like, wait, what year? Like, no, they're, they're even more lost than we are. All right, Jen, what's our next email? Uh, this one comes from Wes. Hey, Spellburners. First off, thanks for doing the show. I ran my first road crew game at a local tap room, and it was a hit. The podcast definitely encouraged me to put myself out there and judge some games for strangers and taught me a lot of tricks of the trade. 
Do you have any suggestions for judging final boss fights? It seems like a fine line where either the party should fail or succeed by a narrow margin. Otherwise, it's kind of anticlimactic. I find it particularly difficult during a one-shot because there's either a time crunch or people are just getting kind of tired. I want to do whatever I can as a judge to make the game end strong. Along those lines, a judge at Gen Con finished our game by asking everyone what their favorite moment of the session was, and now I love doing that myself. It's a great way for people to leave excited, even if I do kind of botch the final encounter. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I love that end note. Um, yeah, usually I'm working on a time crunch because everyone just gets so into it. And I'm like, no, we don't want to leave. We don't want to make room for the next table. We want to like stay here and continue all of this adventure, uh, which in and of itself is kind of a, a high point, right? Um, but during final boss fights, you know, I am actually getting the mind that I want to do those first. And that way, depending on what the fallout is, you can get the replacement characters throughout. But you know, even if it TPKs right at the beginning, you can hand them out extra characters and continue. But that way, they've gotten that really big feel for it. And they don't do the classic, oh, this is the end of a convention game. I'm going to spell burn 30 points and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I'm looking at you, Jeff. Ha, ha, ha. Well, and I'll go ahead and say, I actually, I encourage that kind of play. I want my characters, I want my players to be spellburning down to nothing at the end of the session, because that's DCC. And I want my my clerics to be doing crazy divine aid. And that's actually why I love when the final boss in a DCC game, especially at a convention, is super overpowered. Because really, you're not going to be able to take it or its trillions of henchmen and its ridiculous layer down without doing that. I feel like the warrior really gets to shine throughout most of the game and the, uh, the wizard and the cleric are the ones who get to like do the really insane stuff at the very end. And I want to be able to create an environment where they can just go absolutely batshit and have a blast doing it. <laughs> uh, well said. Yeah, I, this is, I think you could do a whole podcast on the art of pacing a, a RPG session. I find it to be kind of the trickiest thing over the years to try to, you know, figure out uh, how you want the session to flow. And it, as I got more into sandboxing type stuff and, and now the sort of more mega dungeon-y thing, it's, it's also a different art in that thing because you're not just trying to run up to a climax in four to five hours. Um, the All I will say is... Um, my suggestion is two things. Be honest with your characters. Uh, Big John Dahlstrom, my pal here, Judge John, does a really good thing sometimes where in the middle of the session he'll just say, you know what, I think we should skip the next encounter and go to the boss because I want you guys to fight. You know, I really like, and maybe, and he'll even tell you what the next encounter is and give you the choice. Do you want to go over here and screw around and go to this potion room or do you want to go fight the bad guy? And it was a little jarring the first time that happened. But I, I think it's really nice and honest and transparent and sort of acknowledges that everybody at the table has is participating in the game and everybody should have a say. Nice. 
Very cool. Well, thank you for that email. Our next one here is from Judge Mike. Greetings and salutations to the most loquacious and experienced practitioners of the oratory arts. First off, (laughs) love the show. Shout outs to Judge Jen in particular. My daughter and I listen to Spellburn on the way to and from gymnastics, and she loves hearing a girl power voice, her words. We look forward to it every Saturday. Any chance you guys could do, I think every Saturday they have the drive to and from gymnastics. And that's when they listen to it. We're going to step up our game here, guys. (laughs) Uh, Any chance you guys could do a segment on DCC RPG third-party genre supplements that are out in the community? Specifically, I'm thinking about Starcrawl by Jonathan Snodgrass or the upcoming Dark Trails by David Beatty. You could segment it off into uh, the respective genre buckets, Starcrawl, Crawljammer, etc., in the space bucket, Dark Trails, Black Powder, Black Magic in the Western bucket. I think Stephen Newton may have a Weird West adventure brawling, brewing as well. Uh, You get the idea. It would be great to hear the creators interviewed as to how they got inspired, what's upcoming, etc. It dovetails nicely into several discussions about the robust third-party community, one that is absolutely the best aspects of the DCC RPG and Goodman Games community. Keep on rocking the airwaves, Judge Mike. Uh, Thanks, Mike. I think those are great suggestions. I think um, in the spirit of trying to keep this show as manageable to produce, record, and edit, um, I personally probably would not want us to do a segment on each episode about something like that. But I do think these are really great show topic ideas. I think getting Jonathan Snodgrass on to talk about Starcrawl is an awesome idea. And I think getting David Beatty on to talk about Dark Trails is a great idea. And absolutely, we are going to be adding these. If they weren't already on our radar, they will definitely, they're definitely super on our radar now as potential upcoming episode topics. Uh, what do you guys think? Yeah, I'm totally with you that having more than one guest on could be a little more chaotic than we're looking for. Uh, and this comes from someone who used to be part of a four-person cast. <laughs> when we got a guest on for that, yeah, I, I did not envy the editing at all on that one. Um, and as a side note, Stephen Newton's adventure is the last will and testament of Obadiah Filkner, and it is definitely upcoming. And it's very fun. I, I would, I would say the. Um... First of all, yes, yes, and yes. We'll, I think we'll do plenty of that stuff. And uh, just a plug for Dark Trails, I think they have an upcoming Kickstarter, so uh, look for that. Um, I will say that maybe the approach would be to do an episode that's genre-specific. So, I mean, we, Deeper Dives with the Creators is also totally great, and we've certainly done that for Read in America and so on. I think we did Wampler's MCC, which is not really third-party, but we've done various things like that. But we could also do a look at all the Western games out there, Black Powder and Dark Trails and Obadiah and, you know, how does DCC handle that? And then look at Space Adventures and then look at, you know, we could do that kind of thing. So, uh, good suggestion. Thank you, Mike. And Julian, I think that timer might have been from uh, from an earlier uh, share, but it's fine. <laughs> I feel like yeah, I might have cut you off okay. early on that one. Um, We've all been talking right. it over it anyway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you so much. What do we have next? Uh, greetings, Judges Jay, from a man named Kojo. I wanted to share a, rare, a recent experience I had at UConn in Ypsilanti. 
this past November. It was a great con, and I got to play a great DCC game run by Brendan LaSalle called Symptom of the Universe. The next day, I ran my own DCC adventure, recently published in Damn Magazine number three, Portal to the Plane of Probability. I was excited to have two players who were fairly new to DCC and one who had never played it before. And the group was rounded out by two deep veteran DCC players, Adam Muscovich and Keith Nelson's son, Bjorn, who is an excellent player and who I had the pleasure to play with at the last GaryCon. The game was a ton of fun and was pretty wild and crazy. The craziest part of the night came when one of the newer players asked if they could cast the second level spell Strength on herself, and then the next turn Spellburn used the extra strength points as part of the burn. I suspected this was not in the spirit of the spell, but at the same time, this was a con game, so I said, go for it. Needless to say, the hilarity of the ensuing spell checks from that point on was immense. As a result of this ruling on my part, I had to beef up the endgame enemy stats a bit to keep things competitive, but in the end, the party was still successful and a great time was had by all. In looking up the spell afterwards, I saw the spell results often indicate that the target receives strength of XX, not strength equivalent to XX, as I had expected to see. I checked the listing on Spellburn rules and didn't see anything to rule this option out. So what say the judges, Jay? Was my ruling correct? Is this a case where the rules being faster and looser for con games versus campaign games applies? Thanks for your input, DM Kojo. Uh, I'll say, Judge Kojo, that it's an interesting one. I'd say in a con game, I'd probably say go for it and not worry about it too much because they're going to eventually lose the spell anyway and da, da, da. Um, In a campaign game, um, obviously it's uh, something that could lend itself to repeated abuse. So I would probably have to put some house rules on that. And rather than nerf it altogether, I think I would do some, I'm not really sure what I would do, but I would probably have something like, hey, if you're going to try this, you have a chance of it going wrong type thing. So like, because you're not used to what your magically augmented strength is, you have a chance of actually burning more strength in your spell burn than you intended to, or that kind of thing. I'd try to introduce some potential drawback to that uh, slight abuse of the rules there. I have okay, a very... So oh, sorry. Go ahead. You guys know how we, we did that one episode of going through all the first level spells for both the wizards and then mm. the clerics, blah, blah, blah. We never did level two, which is really interesting, because I'm just pulling it up now, and the the very first result, you can be enhanced to a strength of 18, which is plus three modifier, right? The next one, the target is treated as having a strength modifier of plus 10 until the end of the next round. Hmm. So strength modifier, does that mean like instead of a, you know, plus two, I would have a plus 12 to my strength modifier that I add to my damage? Holy cow, that's insane. And then later on, it's like you get strength 20 or 18 or 20, you know, multiple people can get the strength bonus. So it's a really interesting spell in and of itself in the way it varies. And I'll tell you, man, you get some of those new players who look at the various results. They actually read things with fresh eyes and you get some of the craziest stuff thrown at you by those newbies. And I love it. I absolutely love it. And roll with it, Kojo. Uh, It usually fades, you know, after X number of turns. Ooh, 
yikes. So could potentially last for an hour for one casting, but you know what? It The result, I think, that you're looking at at that point is after she's spellburned down, when that other strength fades away, um, what is she left with? Did she burn away all that strength that she has now lost, or did she burn oh. away her own? Thank you, because oh. that's actually what I was going to say earlier, is that my very simple solution to this is spell duration. So absolutely, I would love for you to spell burn all of that fake strength that you have, because as mm-hmm. soon as that spell has ended, you have you have now spell burned more strength than you have, so you're going negative. And what does it mean to be yeah. negative at Judge Jeff's table? Well, since, <laughs> since you can only regain a point of of stat damage from spellburn at a rate of 1 per day that you do no, that you, that you don't do any spellburn to me that means you're going to be with a with a zero strength you're going to be paralyzed and or in a coma for a mm-hmm. number of days equal to how negative you got and once it, once, once that's over you've now woken up and you can now uh, start healing up to one strength and then two strength. That might be a potential way to to adjudicate that in long term, or even I mean, at, at a in a con setting, that's not going to really have much of an effect. But in a campaign, why not? Ooh. Like that might be, yeah, it might be worth it at some point if what you're up against really um, warrants that. Now, add to that that the cleric spell restoration is not meant to be used to heal spellburn uh, or heal stats that have been spellburned. So, yeah, that could be tricky. Yeah. At a con game? Yeah, and, and kudos to the new player. All right. Well, thanks, uh, Kojo, for another great conversation starter. And Jen, what do we have? Oh, and actually, Jen, this next email yeah. is our final email from 2019. And we're Ooh. running out of time. So this is perfect. Let's have one more email. And we will end this episode by being caught up with our 2019 emails. 18. Uh, 2018. <laughs> I have no idea what year we're in. <laughs> yes, thank you. Jeff did say his memory was horrible. <laughs> See, I, I, I don't even remember, remember what year this is. Thank okay. you. Judge Chris is going to round out our 2018. <laughs> really enjoy the podcast. Now that I'm all caught up, I wait eagerly for each installment. <clears throat> Please allow me to apologize right there. Sorry, Chris. Uh, periodically, I'd like to award luck for exceptional roleplay or at the completion of campaign milestones. However, I dread awarding it to thieves and halflings. Since theirs regenerate, I'm reluctant to give them even more luck. I was wondering how other judges handle this. Some ideas that come to mind are to give them an increasing range of temporary luck that they could roll each session or award the luck on a temporary basis and it gets spent first like anyone else's luck and doesn't regenerate. Thanks in advance. Um, yeah. So, Judge Chris, I have fallen into the same pothole where uh, the the thief in our campaign had 21 permanent luck. And that meant that if the group was on hiatus for a long time and they decided to, you know, take a little in-character vacation, yeah, they'd come back to the table and he would have 21 luck. And it's impossible to get anyone to roll under that, or, I mean, over that you know, to fail a luck check. So you got to get him to spend it before he can ever fail a luck check. And it's, yeah, it it's problematic. I'm with you. 
Um, my simple solution is move over to Fleeting Lock. Yeah, that's a great solution as well. I would, <clears throat> I would also add in there that um, one thing that I was doing with the DCC NYC meetup group is when I would award luck, I would have them roll the D20 uh, if it was for a thief or a halfling. And if the D20 was higher than the current luck score, then it was permanent luck. If it was lower than the current luck score, then it was a point that they could use that session. It was just a temporary luck point. And that's what I was doing before the fleeting luck rules existed. But if you want to if you want to have some kind of a house rule that um, makes it harder for these stats to get overinflated um, without incorporating fleeting luck, that might be a way to do it. Well, how would you do that? Good idea, Jeff. How would you do that if you were awarding the luck at the end of the session, Jeff? Same way. Just tell him. Oh, just tell them it'll be temporary to be used the next game. Okay. Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, I don't really award luck at the end of a session, so maybe that's why it never came up. I I always do it on the spot. Gotcha. Uh, I all I will say is um, I do exactly what he suggests here. I. But now with fleeting luck and so on, I am a war. If you're a thief or halfling, you get you start the next session with an extra starting fleeting luck. Great, I love it. Well, guys, we are caught up with our 2018 emails. <laughs> See, I know what year it is. Uh, <laughs> so, if you would like to reach out and add more emails to our mailbag, you can email us at theband at spellburn.com. And please, if you love the show, go to iTunes, leave us a review, leave us a rating. It helps make our podcast more accessible to other people in iTunes' silly little algorithm. Uh, Also, we are looking for new bumpers. If you want to go ahead and create your own introduction Spellburn bumper or your own Mighty Deeds or your own summon email. Oh, I saw the timer going. (laughs) Uh, Please, like, edit something and send it our way. Um, We would love to have some uh, kind of fun um, fan-created bumpers to use on the show here and there. I would also personally like to throw in a specific request for if you can especially make an effort to use female voices as much as possible, including in samples you're taking, I would personally uh, really appreciate that. I think it's really easy to end up in a situation where you just have a bunch of samples of dudes saying cool things. Like also give us a cool, cool, cool women saying things as well. Um, But with that, that is this episode of Spellburn and uh, keep on trucking. Don't roll a one. Game on, guys. You've been listening to Spellburn. Copyright 2017. Our theme song has been graciously provided by Glitter Wizard. Learn more at glitterwizard.bandcamp.com.